First Peter chapter one. Uh, no, that's not a mistake. I know you're maybe wondering or assuming we're going to continue in our series in Mark this morning, but sometimes something happens in the life of a church where a particular passage of Scripture seems uniquely relevant and poignant, and this week our church experienced something, and I thought this passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following would be uniquely appropriate. As Aaron mentioned in our, our prayer this morning, our friend Johnny Perales went home to be with the Lord. He was a relatively young man, if you didn't know him. He was a husband and a father. And it is our responsibility as a church to weep with those who weep, to grieve with his family, and I want to say to his wife and children that we are indeed weeping with you in the painful trial you are having to face, and we are praying that our Heavenly Father will comfort you now and in the future. At the same time, I know I would have Johnny's full endorsement along with his family in saying we are also called to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we should be rejoicing with our brother because he is now enjoying the sight of his Savior and ours. It's a remarkable thing to think that just last Sunday, he was still in this broken and painful age, and this Sunday, he is in the presence of Jesus Christ. His journey in this Christian life in this earth is over. From one week to the next, he transitioned from faith to sight. So this Sunday we do weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And in light of Johnny's death and also in light of the ongoing need that I believe we have as Christians to remember our own eternal hope and to live in light of that hope, I'd like us to return to the book of 1 Peter this morning and study a section of chapter 1. This passage continues, I think, to be very important and relevant for us as well because I believe one of the greatest dangers for the Christian church in this age is to forget our eternal hope in Christ. I'll explain more why I think that's a particular danger later in the message. And, and when we do that, we lose or we begin to feel the diminishment of our enduring joy in Christ. The sight of eternity is meant to light up our souls with joy, even in the face of of certain or possible death. And without that sight ever before us, we will increasingly live in the darkness of this world. I'd like to read this passage and let the light of eternity shine brightly through it into our lives and hearts and fears and suffering this week. Let's begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, bless the preaching and the believing of your word. I'd like to summarize this lengthy passage, if I could, into one brief sentence. I would summarize it this way. Our eternal hope in Christ fills us with enduring joy in Christ. Our eternal hope in Christ fills us with enduring joy in Christ. I want to try to walk through the passage and show how those connections are crucial for the Christian life. Our hope results in joy. As we keep the light of eternity beaming into our souls, what comes out of our souls is joy, joy in Christ, an enduring joy. Not a joy without grief, not a joy without trials, not a joy without waiting, but a joy that endures because of the light of eternity shining into our souls. It is, in one sense, our souls are meant to be like a mirror where the light of eternity shines in and outflows enduring joy. That is the nature of Christianity, so that to be a Christian, one might say to be a Christian, one way to distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian is the endurance of their joy as they face the difficulties of life in this world. The endurance of joy is the mark of an eternal-minded Christian. That's what Peter is wanting to bring to mind to his readers who are suffering, probably in ways that we can't fully imagine, He wants to remind them of the connection between their eternal hope and the joy that should flow out of that hope. So I want to walk through this passage in three sections and try to apply it to what I think is a a crucial moment in our age in the church and even in our life as a church. First, the gift of hope. The gift of hope is what causes Peter to kind of break forth in song in verse 3, the gift of hope. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This explosion of praise to God who has done something because he is the source of this eternal hope. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, according to his great mercy, not according to our merit. Rather, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, Peter would say, was the birth of a new life that was out of reach of the curse of sin. 
because Jesus had absorbed the full curse of sin for his followers, now his resurrection could be handed even to sinners who were clothed by his righteousness and covered by his death. This new life was out of the reach of the curse of sin. It was God's declaration of victory was the resurrection of Christ. His declaration of victory over the sting of death, not that his people would not die physically, but rather that he could give them a true eternal life and eternal hope that would last on the other side of the grave. Blessed be God, Peter says, who has given this new life to you. And this gift comes with an eternal inheritance. It's not just endless life. It is an inheritance that is life in the presence of God, we might say. Notice what he says. This gift comes with an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, unlike the things in this world that are very perishable, very defiled, and easily fading. Rather, our inheritance is kept secure and unchanging in heaven for you. It cannot be taken away from you. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be lessened. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This inheritance, this gift that is given to you of eternal life in the presence of God cannot be changed. And not only is this gift kept for us, we are kept for it. Peter has covered everything. Look down there at verse 5. You, the people who receive this inheritance, you are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what does Peter do? He, he explodes in praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he has caused you to be born again according to his mercy, not according to your deserving of it. And it's through the resurrection of Christ, so it is a secure victory that has caused this to come about. And you've been given an inheritance that cannot fade, it cannot perish, it cannot be defiled. And if you're wondering, well, that's good that it's kept in heaven for me, but what if I were to wander away from the Lord? Well, God is guarding you. Christian. In the meantime, so he's keeping your inheritance for you and he's keeping you for it, for this salvation that is ready. It is ready to be revealed. It has been made ready and nothing can keep God from revealing it at the proper time. This ultimate final salvation will be revealed to you. You will be guarded for it. It will be guarded for you. And that's a reason for Peter to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory of Christ outflowing in the blessing of eternity for his people. That's what Peter said. That's the joy he is rejoicing in. This is the gift of our hope. Peter is ecstatic about this gift. He explodes into this letter to exiles who have, one could say, a, a homeless trial in a world that is opposed to them, questions them, is concerned about them. Peter wants you to know, look, you have a reason for unbounded joy and confidence because of what Christ has done for you and what God has given you in Christ. This is the gift of our hope. Through Christ, we have an eternal hope that should result in enduring joy, worshipful joy, certain joy, undimmed joy, confident joy. Now, this gift made all the difference this week. It made all the difference this week when that family considered the loss of their husband and father. It made all the difference. 
It has made all the difference for every saint who considers the possibility of their own death or faces the death of a loved one. It makes all the difference. This gift, this gift that is secure, it is given by mercy, it is purchased by Christ, it is kept in heaven, and it is guarded until such time as the Lord returns, that gift makes all the difference in any consideration of death. It makes all the difference. It made all the difference in that hospital room this week. It makes all the difference in the soul of every person grieving a loved one. It makes all the difference when the the news breaks into our life with the possibility of future death. It makes all the difference. Where this light of eternity, the eternal gift of hope, shines into the soul of a Christian, the news of death, though it certainly brings a kind of grief, still beams forth with enduring joy. We do not grieve as those do who have no hope. We grieve as those with an eternal gift of hope that cannot be taken from us, and even we are guarded for it, and God himself has secured it by the death and resurrection of his own son. Now, one great distinction we could say between a Christian and a non-Christian in this world is that Christians are those with the gift of eternal life producing enduring joy in their hearts and on their lips. There is no power of earth. There is no power of hell that can take that gift from us. And therefore, there is nothing that should take away our joy. Now, I would like to make a recommendation to all of us, but particularly to those who are consistently burdened by the weights of this world. This has been a season where the weights of this world, I know, have been affecting many Christians. Some prefer to ignore it and roll the dice of ratios and hoping that it will certainly not influence their life too greatly. They're just trying to be positive, but positivity is not the same thing as hope. And it doesn't give you the same kind of joy. Rolling the dice with the future that it will not come to you is not the same thing as having a joy that is fearless in the face of it coming to you, whatever it is. So I want to make a recommendation to those that are are consistently burdened by things like the decline of cultural morality, the fear of governmental abuse, the pain of earthly injustice, or just the desire for earthly security. There are Christians who face all of those fears on a regular basis. Some try to to plan for them, and some of those plans are good, but their focus in responding to those possibilities is to to work harder and plan further. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But sometimes that planning can distract them from the hope we have in eternity. Listen, our plans are not our hope. Others spend time wringing their hands and wondering and staying up late at night wondering what will happen as if our anxiety is our hope. We all know it is not. Some browse news services hoping that perhaps if I can get enough information, I can avoid certain outcomes. But our insight is not our hope. All these things may have their place, but they are not our hope. 
And, and many Christians worry about things like their health or their children's future or their financial security or their, their religious independence. All, all of those things come crowding in with the news feeds. And, and what do we do with them? What do they produce? When they, when they press down to the reality of our heart, where does our heart go? Well, it should go to our eternal hope. We think about things like the unfairness of this world or inconsistency in people's treatment of Christians. It's not fair that we get treated one way and other people get treated another way. Yes, that's true. What do we do with that? We go to our eternal hope. Unchanged, undefiled, undiminished, guarded in heaven for you and you guarded for it until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make this recommendation. If, if any of those categories strike you, whether you're the hardworking type who wants to run towards preparation or you're the anxious type who spends time in a cyclone of worry and uncertainty, let me make a recommendation to you. If either of those tendencies are true for you, spend a good deal of time in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and other similar passages. Spend a good deal of time there. Let the light of this passage shine into your heart on a regular, regular basis. Look, these are precious words. They are glowing words. They are thousand-watt words. And they are meant to be always on in your heart. And if they are not, your life will look like somebody stumbling around in a basement with the light off, looking for hope and constantly tripping over the brokenness of this world. You're meant to have the light of hope. That's part of what makes you a Christian. Don't try to live life the best way possible as if I had no hope. How good could I do if I sort of pretend I don't have eternal hope? That's not why Jesus died and rose again. He rose again to turn on the thousand-watt light bulb of eternal hope in your soul so when the news feed comes in, you first go to, yes, but there is an eternal hope. When the thought comes, well, what happens if my children don't get to have this, that, or the other thing? Well, yes, but I have an eternal hope and I can offer that eternal hope to them. What happens if this or that gets taken away from me? Yes, but I have an eternal hope that cannot be taken away from me. What happens if I struggle? Well, God is keeping me for that eternal hope. What happens if our country changes? What happens if moral, cultural values change? What happens if we are injured or wounded or fired? Well, we have an eternal hope. See, the light of eternity is meant to shine into the ongoing uncertainties of our life. The gift of hope should shape the emotional experience of the Christian life. It should shine into our life on a regular basis. Too many Christians who know the light of this eternal gift live practically as if they never received it. They know of our eternal inheritance, but they live as though this life is all there is. They turn off functionally the light of eternity in their souls. If you turn that light off, it is not surprising that this world seems dark, unfair, unjust, and terrible without a lot of promising news flashes running through your news feeds. This world would only be dark if there was no hope of eternal life No future joy to anticipate. No security for our souls. No wonder so many people live gripped by the fear of death or the idolatry of earthly power. No wonder. It's not surprising 
And I don't blame people who do not have hope in the Lord Jesus or only have a kind of vague American religious optimism when they are terrified by death. That is not surprising. I would be too. And listen, a, a kind of a ridiculous American circle of life kind of thinking that says, look, you know, sometimes you live and then you die, and the best thing you can do is get the most out of life and then you face death at the end. Look, that's terribly depressing. That's horribly depressing. Why? Because our souls were made for eternity, and even the most self-convinced person that is an atheist has a cavern in their heart called, I was made for eternity, and this idea that you just make the best of life that you can and then you die has a, a gaping hole in there that says, I was made for something more than that and longer than that. Christians are those who live with the light of eternity shaping their Monday afternoon. They shape the next conversation with the boss, the next parenting moment with the child, the main goal for the high school years, the main priority for where you live, how you think about the next gathering of Christians, it shapes everything. Often, often we are tempted to act like those who are called to live without this sight. I, I've been amazed <laughs> watching some of the reports that happened recently about, about the, the Paralympics and, and, and those athletes that are frankly incredible <laughs> doing things I, I cannot even imagine with with the limitations that they face but you know what it, it would be like for a Christian I've watched some kind of game and I don't even know a lot about it but it's, it's basically for those who are visually impaired as, as my understanding and they, they do all these things you know visually impaired they play this game you know what it's like for a Christian it's like trying to play that game when you're not visually impaired but choosing to be It'd be like going around the world blindfolded intentionally to see how good you could do. Well, let's think about work this week as if I had no hope and this job was all I, I can trust in. Let's think about the mortgage payment as if this life is all there is and it's all I can trust in. Let's think about my marriage and my parenting and the raising of my children and, and my physical concerns and what the doctor said last week and what might happen next month and what Congress might do and what the president might do and what's happening internationally as if I have no eternal hope. I'm just going to close my eyes and sort of feel my way no different than everybody else around me. You can see. Open your eyes and see. Turn on the light of eternity. It changes everything. And the main thing it changes is it gives enduring joy. There is never a day in the life of a Christian where this explosion of worship can't burst forth from our lips. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy on this day when I lost my job, when the van broke down, when the AC doesn't work, when my child is struggling, when I got a terrible news report. You know what happens this day? I know that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance kept in heaven for you, undefiled, unfading, undiminished, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now that is light. That is sight. For every trial.
sometimes we, we lose sight of that even though it's just a normal day and nothing uniquely troubling has happened to us. We're just worried about what might happen, but sometimes we lose sight of that because of the actual trials that come into our lives. And I think Peter knows that, which is why he moves on from the gift of our hope to the evidence of our hope. Point number two. The evidence of our hope. Look at this in verse 6. In this you rejoice, this eternal hope, this gift of hope, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, We must not stop our biblical knowledge at verse 5. You have to transition from verse 5 to verse 6. The gift of eternal life is meant to change our view of earthly trials, but listen to this, it does not eliminate them. This is the great danger of the faith movement, as it's called, is that it begins to imply or even say outright that if we focus enough on God's good purposes for us, we will not experience the grieving nature of trial or difficulty or burden. And yet, it doesn't stop at verse 5. In this you rejoice, though. It's not that you rejoice and you have faith in this and therefore you won't experience trial. It's that you rejoice in the midst of trial and you don't just rejoice in the midst of trial because they have an ending date, as glorious as that would be. It's not just because they will be brought to an end. Notice the logic of the passage. Verse 6, it says, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result, what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The effect of trials... These trials that are not random, not constant, but sometimes necessary, is that the evidence of our faith is revealed to us and to God. Now, now, God already knows who are actually Christians, but somehow in the providence of God, it is good for that evidence to be displayed. It is good for His glory. It bears witness to the reality of true Christian faith. Somehow, and throughout the Scriptures we see this, it is in God's good purpose that His salvation and genuine faith be distinguished from false assurance and mere positivity. Now these these trials are various. And I love that word. Because it means whoever you are, you can find your life story in this verse. They are various. Perhaps there is someone here who will lose their job because it requires them to do something they cannot do in good conscience before the Lord. We are not far from that possibility. There's a member of our church who's already experienced that test. Perhaps there are some parents here who wonder if their children will suffer outright persecution for their faith as Christians. 
Perhaps there are some of you here who wonder how we can be faithful Christians if the culture and its institutions turn against us and call good evil and evil good. These are various trials, or perhaps, like this week, we will face the death of a loved one or the reduction of our own earthly strength. Notice we don't just rejoice because these trials will one day come to an end, though they will. We rejoice because they themselves have a necessary divine purpose in revealing the reality of true faith in the same way that gold is revealed by a refining fire. And he says even gold eventually will perish at the coming of the Lord, but your faith is even better. It is revealed, and it is revealed in its eternal value of greater value even than gold. In a similar way, it is refined, it is revealed to be genuine, and yet unlike gold, it will not end when the end of the world comes. It will last even longer than that. Listen, the Bible is not interested in the false assurance of American religious positivity. The Bible is not interested in the false assurance of American religious positivity, and neither should we be. It, it's remarkable to me, in a world that hates being a sucker and is so cynical all the time, I'm not sure that's true, I'm not sure that's true, I'm not sure he's telling the truth, I don't really believe anything. I've... The, the people that really should be most concerned about being a sucker are the people who believe, just based on their own authority, that they're surely going to end up in heaven. Talk about being the ultimate sucker, a human being with no reason simply assuming that God will surely let me in heaven. Now that is the ultimate sucker. Well, on what basis does a God who owns the universe have any debt to the people he created who have rebelled and ignored him? On what basis does a person have a positive confidence that they'll go to a better place when they die? On no basis at all. The Bible assumes the opposite. The Bible assumes that surely people who are sinners would want to have real evidence. Surely a person that knows themselves to be a sinner would want to have real evidence and would be concerned about the possibility of false confidence. Surely, the Bible assumes, surely you're not so arrogant as to assume that God will just let you into heaven because he's a nice guy. He doesn't care about all the ways you've sinned against him. Surely, surely you're not so proud, the Bible would say. And since we're assuming you're not that proud, we are assuming you would like to know the difference between someone who is merely positive and someone who is actually a Christian. Well, the Bible explains what that test is. The test is a trial of earthly comfort and security. And when it comes, it reveals those who are merely positive and turn away from Jesus because they only liked Him as long as their life was good and those who love Jesus even when everything else in life is taken from them. There it is. It reveals something that should be precious to us. Real faith. I still love Him even though my loved one dies. I still love him, even though I'm sick. I still love him, even though I lost my job. I still love him, even though I lost some sense of cultural security that I grew up with. I still love him. There it is. 
There it is. There's the fire that reveals true faith. And since I value true faith, and I don't assume I'm just going to be led into heaven because God's a nice guy, I am grateful even for the difficulty of trial. I don't choose trial. But if God considers it necessary to reveal to me that my faith in Him is real and genuine, then I can thank God in the midst of that trial. I can thank God in the midst of that fire. You know why? Because I see the gleam of a gold that will last to the other side of this world. And I could not see it in God's providence any other way. Eternal hope is so precious to us that the Christian would rather have evidence of it through the pain of a trial than live without that evidence and having a pain-free life. The true Christian would rather have evidence of their faith in a necessary trial than to go without that evidence and have a pain-free life. They don't choose the pain, but should God deem it necessary to bring pain into our lives, suffering into our lives, a loss of political freedoms into our lives, a loss of job into our lives, and if what that does is reveal in us a gold that is eternal and valuable and revealing of that thing that will last to the other side of this earth, then we say we rejoice in the midst of these grieving trials. We rejoice in them, and we rejoice if God should choose to bring them in the future. Listen, I want to speak in this point specifically to mothers, because I find that mothers face this in a unique way as they think about their children. As the culture changes, as the pressure against biblical morality changes, as the assumption that a Christian is a hateful person if they believe the Bible, as that increases, I find that mothers consistently worry, what will happen to my children? Here's what will happen to them. If they believe in Jesus Christ, and if you are a young person in this church... I don't care how old you are, if you do not believe in Jesus, you can have no hope of eternal life in heaven. You don't get to go to heaven because you're sitting in one of these chairs. You just don't. I don't have any tickets for heaven I can give you. I have none. But I can represent the Lord Jesus and say, if you believe in him as your Savior who died for your sins and who rose again from the death, then he pays for your sins and you get to go to heaven. And if you believe in Jesus, then nothing that happens to you in this life can take Jesus away from you. And I don't know what's going to happen to you in your life. Your life, you might face trials and difficulty that I haven't had to face. You might face pressures and temptations to do the wrong thing because everybody around you is pressuring you to do that wrong thing. And you might have to say, no, I believe in Jesus and I don't care if you think I'm terrible. You might have to say that in a way that I didn't. You might have to do that if you're eight years old. You might have to have the experience of watching one of your Christian leaders or pastors be put in jail because he's saying things about Jesus and the Bible that everybody says are terrible even though they're right here in the Bible. You might have to face that even though I haven't yet. But if you believe in Jesus, Jesus cannot be taken from you. Moms, if your children face that kind of trial, in this you too can 
rejoice. That the tested genuineness of their faith can be revealed through that trial. You too should be much more concerned about the evidence of true faith than the endurance of earthly comfort. Now, no mother that I know is more concerned about the pain of a splinter than getting it out so there's no infection. Every mother gets that. Every mother gets that. But sometimes we forget that there's life on the other side of the splinter. Think of, for a moment, if you can, the pain of labor, the difficulty of it. We had a new baby born this week, the, the pain of labor. But those who have been through labor, they, they understand, look, there, there is a joy on the other side. Listen, you want that for your children. You don't want them to avoid that pain. You want them to experience the joy on the other side. If trials should come, and God will only bring those trials that are absolutely necessary for the revealing of genuine faith, you want the assurance that those trials reveal genuine faith in their souls. Look, don't, don't hope and long primarily for a pain-free life for your children. Long for the evidence of eternal gold in their souls. This life is short. These trials are brief. And they are only necessary because God is sovereign over them. And one day the Lord Jesus will return. And you will want to stand there on that day and see children who are standing confident in the Lord Jesus Christ, though marked by the scars of this world. That's the vision that every mother should pass on to their children. Son, daughter, you may suffer, but I will stand with you. And if I precede you, I will be cheering you on as you stand for this eternal hope, unafraid of grieving trials. And one day, your inheritance and mine will gleam with the glory of Jesus Christ and we will enjoy it together. Now, that's a big difference from mere religious positivity. That's real gold. Peter says that we rejoice in our trials because they will have an end, but also because they reveal the tested genuineness of our faith. Finally, Peter says, the central longing of this hope that God has given us in Christ that endures even in the midst of trials. The central longing of our hope is Jesus Christ. Point number three, the glory of our hope. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Peter concludes this section talking about Jesus Christ, reminding them, look, this isn't just an abstract inheritance. This isn't just an abstract religion. There is a person at the center of it. And you don't see him right now as you walk through these grieving trials. But though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him right now, you believe in him. And here it is again. And you rejoice with joy that is beyond words and full of glory. And the result of that kind of Christ-centered focused life is that you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just as surely as the person who has the salvation given by God cannot lose Christ, so the person who has that salvation will surely keep their focus on Christ in this world. Our focus is on Jesus Christ, the eternal hope of seeing Jesus Christ face to face, the experience that our friend is having right now. Listen, it is, it is a, a dreadful lie of this dark world that death is only the end and not the beginning. Or that if it is the beginning, it is the beginning only of some abstract non-personal experience in some cloudy room somewhere. No, death means facing Jesus. That's what death means. Death is the door that opens to Jesus. And those who have given their lives to serve him with every ounce of their strength and to their dying day will find when that door opens that they have their heart's delight right in front of them. And those that have rejected Jesus and sought to serve themselves every day will find when they open that door that he is not what they have been living for. Because they've been staring in a mirror, loving their own face, and the face that is in front of them in heaven will not be their own. For the Christian, the eternal hope that we are living for is the sight of Jesus Christ. And that is the sight he promises to give to us. He says to us right now, wait. And blessed are you if you have to wait. Blessed are those who have to wait to see Jesus and yet believe in him. There is a particular honor for those who have never yet seen him and yet love him and believe in him by faith. And when that door opens and we will see the face that is the center of all of our hopes and dreams, the endurance of all of our trials, then on that day we will experience joy unveiled, undimmed by pain and death, inexpressible and full of glory, fully revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the ultimate glory of our hope, the ultimate cause of our joy. He is the joy that is our strength. He is the security that is our comfort. He died to absorb the true sting of death in our place. And now he lives and prepares a place for us that where he is, we may also be. In knowing Christ, we gladly count all else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So don't let the light of Christ-centered eternity be shut off or dimmed in your soul. Don't let it. 
Keep that light on. Keep a Christ-centered eternal vision on in your soul. Whatever you have to do, do not stumble around in the basement of this life doing things but without the light of eternity. Do we have things to do down here? Yes. God put us here for a reason. We have good things to do and justice to defend and weak people to care for and people to love on. We have lots of stuff to do. There's things to be organized and put right and put in order. And as Christians, we have a particular responsibility to work hard until that day comes. But don't do it without the light of eternity. And remembering that this basement is temporary. We're in it, and there's other people in it too, and we are going to work hard in it until the Lord Jesus comes, but keep the light of Christ-centered eternity shining. Do not let the next paycheck, the next test, the next day, the next week, the next news report turn off the light of eternity and make you walk around in this basement world as if you're supposed to do it with your eyes closed. Keep your eyes of faith open to Christ-centered eternity. And one day, you will actually see him. When you feel conviction of sin, remember Christ and our eternity with him purchased by his blood. When you feel alone in relational conflict, remember Christ and eternity with him, reconciled by his blood. When you consider the reality of physical death in this world, remember Christ and the indestructible life he gives to each of us and let the light of eternity change the way you view death and disease in this world. When you begin to grasp earthly comfort and security too tightly, shine the light of eternity on your soul and remember your greatest love is not physical comfort or hope in this life but the glorious christ seated in the heavens and the sight of him is your undying joy let the light of eternity produce enduring joy in the church of the lord jesus christ let's pray Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be appropriately affected and motivated by the news of physical death, especially the physical death of one of your people. To remember, Lord, to count our days and to remember that the end of them is seeing you. Turn us away, Lord, from those temptations to live in the darkness. Oh, keep our eyes fixed on the light of your eternity. Lord, for those who battle fear or self-confidence, self-trust, I pray, Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause them to spend time here to let this light shine regularly into their souls. Lord, make these verses their own. These verses and others like them. Lord, shine these verses into their soul this week, into their temptations, into their battles with worldly-mindedness, into their fear of the future. Lord, shine these light of these verses into their souls. Let them make all the difference. This week and in the coming days. Lord Jesus, I want to pray finally 
for any young people here who have not believed in you as their Savior and Lord. Children, Lord, young boys, young girls, who know that they've been sitting in church, but they haven't placed their confidence in you to save them. Lord, please, Lord, convict their heart right now and draw them to you so they can have this eternal joy with us as well. Please, Lord Jesus, please save souls. In Jesus' name.